Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded podcast. One of the questions that I'm most frequently asked is, why is a rugby ball oval? It's an obvious question. Soccer is so dominant in Britain and most other countries in the world that we automatically assume that the perfectly round ball is the norm. But, as is the case with most aspects of the history of the different codes of football, the story is not quite so straightforward. In fact, if we look around the world, most of the football codes, American, Australian, Canadian, League and Union, are actually played with an oval ball. Only two out of the seven major codes, soccer and Gaelic football, are played with a round ball. And if we go back before the codification of modern football, there were essentially no restrictions on the shape, size or even the type of object which could be used as a ball in the various types of folk football. Usually, an inflated pig's bladder was used, but some games used other objects. In Leicestershire, in Hallerton's bottle-kicking game, as its name suggests, a type of leather bottle was used as a ball, while in Lincolnshire's Haxy Hood game, a leather tube was used. There was a similar diversity when it came to the different types of British public school football games which shaped modern football. The rugby school ball was of course more oval in shape. The Eton ball was round but much smaller than the soccer ball, whereas the Winchester ball was much bigger. The Harrow ball is shaped something like a pork pie. Indeed, the shape of the ball was not even a contentious issue in the early years of the game. The famous 1856 United Football Rules of Cambridge University made no mention of the ball, despite being drawn up by former pupils of Rugby, Eton, Harrow and Shrewsbury schools. Nor was it discussed during the formation of the Football Association in 1863. The reason for the acceptance of this wide variety of football shapes and sizes was due both to tradition. Once a certain shape of ball had been introduced, players got used to playing the game with it and technology. Before the 1860s, there was no way of producing consistently shaped inflatable balls. In general, the shape of the ball was defined by the animal bladder used to make it. This meant that most footballs were neither really round nor oval, but shaped more like a plum of varying sizes and shapes, so it was impossible to insist on a certain type of ball. But this wide variety of ball shapes also allowed what we might call the evolutionary logic of football to slowly emerge. In the natural world, minor physical differences between animals can give a single species an evolutionary advantage. For example, a species of bird with a slightly sharper beak can flourish because it can dig out more worms than a bird with a rounded beak. So too in football, where minor differences in the shape of the ball could give an advantage to players depending on which rules of football they played. This explains the popularity of the slightly more oval ball in the rugby school version of the game. In the 1820s and 1830s, the major difference between the rugby game and the games played in other public schools was not whether the ball could be handled, but how a goal was scored. In all the other games, the ball was kicked between two posts to score a goal. Some games specified that the ball also had to be kicked below a bar or a tape across the top of the goalpost. But in rugby football, the ball had to be kicked between the posts and over the bar to score a goal. This meant balls which gave the kicker more lift became popular because they increased the chances of kicking the ball off the ground and scoring a goal. So, the more oval the ball, the easier it was to score a goal by place kicking or drop kicking. Perhaps ironically, given the way in which the rugby codes today are defined as handling games, the evolutionary impulse towards the oval ball came from the rugby player's desire to kick the ball further and more accurately. The other factor in the development of the rugby ball was the fact that one of England's leading ball manufacturers was literally just across the road from rugby school. 
William Gilbert was, according to his own advertisement, a fashionable boot and shoe manufacturer whose shop was in St Matthew's Street in Rugby. Gilbert supplied both everyday footwear and football boots to the pupils of rugby school and, as with many other cobblers, his expertise in leatherwork led him to expand his business into the production of leather balls. He produced these by inflating a pig's bladder, reputedly using his prodigious lung power and encasing it in four panels of leather. By the middle of the century, Gilberts were Britain's leading manufacturers of footballs, and in 1851 they displayed their balls at the Great Exhibition in London, Victorian Britain's ostentatious celebration of manufacturing across the British Empire. Gilbert's display at the exhibition was, in the words of one visitor, a house built entirely of leather, which showcased the firm's shoes, boots and footballs, which were entered into the exhibition catalogue as educational appliances, a nod to the moral mission that football had in the public schools of the time. Gilbert's leather panel ball meant that it was possible to somewhat constrict the shape of the pig's bladder and to manufacture balls to a more consistent shape than in the past. Boys from rugby school therefore asked the fan to make balls which were more oval shaped for better kicking. But it was still impossible to produce uniformly oval balls for rugby, or for that matter round balls. This would only happen if the pig's bladder could be replaced by something which could guarantee consistency of shape. The solution to the problem came from the other side of the Atlantic. In the late 1830s, Charles Goodyear unveiled what he called vulcanised rubber, which could be hardened and shaped. Although Goodyear was interested in producing better tyres, eventually it was realised that vulcanisation could be used to make inflatable bladders, and that meant footballs could now be produced in consistent shapes and sizes. But it wasn't Gilbert who pioneered the rubber bladder. It was his local rival, Richard Linden. Linden may have started his working life as an apprentice at Gilbert's, but he soon opened his own shop near the school. He also had a strong personal motivation for improving the manufacture of footballs. His wife and mother to his 17 children, Rebecca, was responsible for blowing up the pig's bladders in his footballs. This was a dangerous job because of the risk of infection from the bladder, and tragically Rebecca died from a lung disease she may have caught while blowing up the bladder of a diseased pig. In 1862, Linden came up with a way to replace the pig's bladder with vulcanised rubber. He also invented a brass valve which stopped air from the bladder from being inhaled when the ball was being inflated. The modern ball had been invented, but because Linden did not take patents out on his ideas, he missed out on the chance to become wealthy from his revolutionary inventions. This technological development took place at exactly the time when both rugby and soccer were starting to acquire new levels of popularity. The small differences in rules, such as the shape of the ball, now took on much greater importance because of the emergence of organised tournaments between clubs, such as Soccer's FA Cup in 1871 or Rugby's County Cups in the mid-1870s. To play matches in a tournament meant clubs now had to agree on rules, not least of which was the shape of the ball. It was no accident, therefore, that it was in the middle of the first FA Cup competition in 1872 that the Football Association first discussed standardising the ball. And it was two weeks before the second tournament kicked off that the FA finally decided to agree on the size of the ball. However, Rugby Union did not specify the shape or size of the ball until the relatively late date of 1892. Unlike soccer, the RFU refused to allow National Cup or League competitions and so there was less pressure for such precise definitions. Indeed, debates in rugby about using a round ball were not unusual in the late 19th century, with a number of journalists suggesting the game would be better played with a soccer-style ball. Counterintuitively for us, the discussion was based entirely on the best type of ball for kicking. 
the supporters of the round ball argued it would be easier for forwards to dribble, while their opponents pointed to the greater kicking accuracy of the oval ball. Shortly after the Northern Union broke away from the RFU in 1895, it sanctioned two experimental matches using a round ball, but it was rejected overwhelmingly, not only because of the kicking problems, but also because the round ball made handling and passing more difficult. For an organisation pledged to create the most attractive and exciting form of handling rugby, these matches demonstrated that using the round ball was out of the question. From that moment on, there was never any further suggestion that rugby could ever be played with anything but the oval ball. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Rugby Reloaded podcast. My Twitter handle is at CollinsTony and my website is www.rugbyreloaded.com where you can find the complete archive of episodes about the history of rugby and the other football codes together with the show notes for this episode. So, until next time, thanks for listening.